Hello and happy March. As you may know, March is Women's History Month, so we are rerunning one of our favorite episodes, our conversation with producer Stacy Share. This episode is very near to my heart. It was my first time as the main host, the first time that Dana Gurrier joined me as co-host, and Stacy dives into everything from being a support system in the community of TV and filmmaking, to coming up in the entertainment industry as a woman, to the incredible stories she has from the projects that she's produced. Currently, Stacy is producing the 93rd Academy Awards along with Steven Soderbergh and Jesse Collins, which will take place in April, and the Aretha Franklin biopic, Respect, which is currently slated for an August 2021 release. We'll have more specials coming your way this month, and keep an eye out for the season two premiere of Hollywood Unscripted coming this spring. From Kurtco Media, there's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. This is another special of Hollywood Unscripted, and today we're doing things a little differently. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I will be your host, along with my special guest co-host, Dana Gurrier. Dana is an actress and a creative. She's been in projects such as American Horror Story, Lee Daniels' The Butler, the upcoming The United States vs. Billie Holiday. She's also worked a couple times with our guest today, Stacey Scher, in Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. You know, it's so funny. I do want to share this with you all. When I graduated from CalArts, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether I was to get in line in Los Angeles or go to a smaller pond. And so I decided to go back home to New Orleans. And that's where I was able to book a lot of really incredible projects, namely Django Unchained, which is how I originally met Stacy. And then I got to work with her again on Hateful Eight. And then there were tons of projects in between them that I feel very blessed to say I was a part of. And Stacy is an extraordinary woman. She is a pioneer and I'm just really happy to be here today. Look. This industry is a team sport. It takes a village to create a project, and the people at the helm affect everyone. The good leaders stand out, and we're lucky enough to have one with us today. Today, our guest is a prolific producer. She's worked on projects such as Aaron Brockovich, Garden State, Gattaca, Pulp Fiction, Reality Bites, Burnt, Matilda, Contagion, The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and the upcoming Mrs. America, just to name a few. I am thrilled to welcome Stacy Share. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you here. I'm so excited to be here and with you and Dana. First and foremost, I want to say cuz we are recording this in week 4, I believe of quarantine. So, Ooh. how are you doing? We're hanging in there. You know, I have two teenagers that are in online school and we're all trying to figure out how to work in our house. So, my husband has taken the garage, my kids are in their bedrooms and I'm in our bedroom. And some days we fear that the internet will not support us all. <laughs> but we're really blessed because everyone's healthy. You know, I produce contagion, so I've been social distancing for a long time. We probably started a little bit sooner than most people did in, really? in California, much to the irritation of my 16 and 18 year old. Maggie is, well, both of your kids are so beautiful, but I see her on your social media and she's grown up so fast. I know they were so little during Hateful and tiny during Jenga. <laughs> right. Dana, I wanted to ask you just before we start, what is, from your perspective, Stacy's producing style? 
Okay, so I'm going to be candid. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, so uh, on Hateful, I don't know if you remember, I got t-shirts of my favorite line of all of the characters and the ones that I gave to the producers was Everybody's Got a Mother. And that was a t-shirt I had made for them because that's what it felt like. They mothered us and particularly Stacey. If I had an issue or a problem, Jenny, or a concern, or if I was just nervous or scared, because it's, it's a little daunting to be on sets like that, you know, especially as young as I was in my career. And she was always there, always extremely helpful. And honestly, she was not playing with anybody. Stacy, you didn't take no for an answer. You were just a boss lady. And I took a lot of cues from you. I don't know if you know that, but I watched and I learned a lot from an extraordinary producer. Thank you. I mean, they were both challenging in different ways, but Mm -hmm. I think for you, probably Django is harder because it was newer for you. It was the first project I'd ever done at that scale. I mean, I think I'd shot maybe three projects prior to that. No, it was two. And then here I was with all of these incredible people, including yourself. I I just remember feeling so absolutely welcomed, particularly by you being so green. And I will never forget that ever. That's so kind of you. I do think that Trying to really look out for people because I appreciated it so much when people did it for me early in my career has always been something that's been really important to me. Talking about your early career, we did want to go back and start from the beginning. You went to USC. Was film the dream before that? Well, it's funny. I started college really young. I started college when I was 16. And I started at the University of Miami because my parents wouldn't let me go further away. By that point, we were living in Florida. And I transferred to the University of Maryland to study radio, TV, film. And I thought I was going to go into sports broadcasting. And I had an internship at this sports show called the George Michael Sports Machine. And I realized at that moment, it was going into my senior year of college, that I did not want to be that person pushing my way into a locker room. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I didn't know what I was going to do anymore. Mm. And I was really blessed with a professor at Maryland who was a trustee at AFI. And he said, there's this relatively new program at USC. You seem to love movies. And it's called the Peter Stark Motion Picture Producing Program. And it's for graduate students. And no one in my family was in entertainment. I didn't know how ridiculously hard it was to get in. And again, a kind of divine intervention. I was accepted to Stark and I started in right after I graduated. So I was a film geek and I loved movies. It's just that when I was coming up, it was so long before people kind of thought of entertainment, particularly for women, with the exception of acting, it wasn't really visible what jobs would be available for women. So then you went to USC, you graduated. It looks to us, because we checked out your IMDb, your first (laughs) credit is a thanks on Adventures in Babysitting, and then your second is an associate producer in Heartbreak Hotel, which were both Chris Columbus films. Yes. While I was in graduate school, I talked to the head of the Stark program, Art Murphy, into letting me keep the job that I was working at to help support myself. And that was working for a music video director. So I worked on these sort of iconic 80s videos while I was in graduate school. Twisted Sister, We're Not Gonna Take It, and Pat Benatar, We Belong. Oh my gosh. All these early videos. And so another one of my fellow students, and I think this is really important lesson in coming up in the business, which is getting to know your peers. David Simpkins, who wrote Adventures in Babysitting, was a production executive at a company called New World. And basically New World made a really good movie called Girls Just Want to Have Fun in the 80s, but they mostly made exploitation films called like 
uh, angel, Hollywood high school student by day, Hollywood hooker by night. (laughs) A small known fact about New World Pictures is they also owned Marvel at the time and nobody was interested in making Marvel movies. But David wanted to become a writer, but he worked in physical production And I met him through another Stark student and he wanted to meet me because he wanted to write a script and he wanted to cast Twisted Sister. So we became friends. And while Twisted Summer never got made, um, he told me about something that he was writing and the Martin Scorsese movie After Hours had just come out and he was writing this movie called Adventures in Babysitting. And he described it as After Hours for Kids. So one crazy night with your babysitter. (laughs) The second job that I had while I was in graduate school was working as an assistant assistant at TriStar Pictures. And there was a wonderful woman who is an executive there named Alan Stewart. And she said, you seem really smart. And when you get out of school, if there are jobs you're up for, let me know if I can get you in for an interview. Most people don't do this. I try to do it for people now as well because it changed my career. And I had heard about a job working for two producers, Deborah Hill and Linda Oakes. And I asked Alan to call for me and she did. And they hired me on a temporary kind of trial basis because they were about to go off and make a movie. And during that time period, David wrote his script. He gave it to me before his agent. We bought it. It became the first movie that the two of them made. And I got a full-time job. That's amazing. That's me and Adventures in Babysitting. And it was Chris Columbus's directorial debut. And then he brought his second film, which was an original, to us to make. And that was Heartbreak Hotel. And and it was at that time period that I met Richard Legravenes. And my other first real credit was on The Fisher King. Yeah. So and during The Fisher King, I left to go to Jersey Films. And that was right around the time that I met Quentin. Mm-hmm. Terry Gilliam actually had been one of his mentors at the Sundance Lab who directed The Fisher King. So it's all wow. it's all connected. all connected. There is a web in Hollywood. Everybody knows that. But the best people lift the person up on their right as they're moving left. And I think you're one of those people. And that's kind of why I wanted Dana to join us because I know you did that for her as well. You work with several people repeatedly. What inspires you to do that? Look, I think you're lucky if you get to work with really talented people repeatedly. Mm. Steven Soderbergh said that his dad used to have a motto of like, that was about like treat people well and repeat business. And so I think that that has always been important to me, you know, to treat people really well and want to continue to work together. You know, Richard Legravenes and I have worked together repeatedly. Quentin and I have worked together repeatedly. Steven and I have worked together repeatedly. Scott Mm -hmm. Frank, who wrote Get Shorty and Out of Sight and who wrote and directed A Walk Among the Tombstones is my oldest friend in the movie business. I met him at the same time, my first week of working for Deborah and Linda. You know, and, and look, I was happy that many years later, and unfortunately she passed away before the movie came out, that I was able to do the World Trade Center movie with Deborah Hill, who was my first boss and mentor. I really, not to get to be too much of a hippie here, but be a hippie. <laughs> I definitely operate in the abundance of the universe and I don't guard my friendships or mm-hmm. my access. I think that more begets more and I like to connect people mm-hmm. and I like it when my friends become friends with other people or I like to introduce people. It, it gives me joy. I love that. I'm of the same mind as well. Be a hippie all day, please. <laughs> right? I want to go back to Jersey Films. How did you connect with Danny DeVito and Michael Schamberg? Where did that start? 
by this point, Deborah Hill and Linda Obst had split up and I kind of knew that it was time for me to move on. And I don't move around a lot in my career. I was with the two of them for six years. And at that point, it wasn't as much fun when it wasn't the three of us. So I was approached by Jane Rosenthal and Robert De Niro to move to New York to go run Tribeca. And I love Jane. And she actually was our executive at Disney on Adventures in Babysitting. And I really was weighing it very heavily, but I had nobody to talk to about it. When you're young and you don't really have anybody to pass these things off on. And and my mm-hmm. friend Elizabeth Shue, who was in Adventures in Babysitting, was um, dating a very well-known actor or director. And she said, oh, well, why don't we ask him for advice? And so then I asked him for advice and and I almost went to go work for him. And while I was weighing all of that, I got called by a headhunter and they said, Danny DeVito and Michael Schamberg have a new company and they're looking for someone. And Michael, my other ex-partner, he always says that, um, that my resume glowed, like that he knew that that was the one for them. And we had an incredible 12 years together and we made a deal with Quentin before he'd even shot a frame of film. And after Pulp Fiction, I became Danny and Michael's partner. And I worked with incredible female executive who was the original president of the company who left for a little while to do something different when her kids were younger and is an incredible producer and executive who I worked with later when she was at MGM and Sony, Elizabeth Cantillon. In fact, she was one of our executives at Sony on Django. And then big news today, Pam Abdi, who's now the president of MGM, started out as our intern at Jersey Films and became president at Jersey Films and is one of my closest friends. So it's nice to see great people do well. Yeah, It sounds like a very specific moment, though, when you had these sort of three options and three avenues to go in. Do you think about that sometimes? Like what my life would have been like if I had gone with Trebecca or Elizabeth Shrewd's guy in those other avenues? I think I knew that it didn't feel right to move to New York at that time, because I was still only probably 26. And my folks had moved to California from Florida. At that point, also the center and the heart of the film business was in California. So I wasn't prepared to leave the center. It felt like I was sidelining myself to a specific kind of thing, even though I really admire Jane and obviously the opportunity to work with Robert De Niro, you know, who's a hero of mine would have been great. But, um, you know, I just decided to to stay here. So that call from the headhunter, you were 26 and you get a call saying, we'd like you to come be a part of this thing. What What is that feeling in your mid-20s? Right. Well, it wasn't, we want you to come be a part of this. It was, will you come interview to be a right. part of this? <laughs> right. You know, and I had a great meeting with Elizabeth and Michael. And then I had a really special meeting with Danny. We loved so many of the same movies. I mean, all of us did. And it just felt right. You know, I wasn't running it. I was a senior vice president when I started. And then Elizabeth wanted to take some more time off and we became co-presidents. And then I guess... I think by the time I heard from them, maybe I was 27. I think the Tribeca thing was probably when I was 26. Mm-hmm. And I met Quentin, I guess, by the time I was 28. Then we made yeah. the movie and it came out. I met mm-hmm. Quentin in 1991. Wow. So. 
So while you were at the Jersey Films, you made yes. amazing movies. I just have to shout out Gattaca. We watched in like my high school biology class. Mm-hmm. And it was like the one time I wanted to go to science class. Aww, thank you. <laughs> um, well, it's it's funny with Gattaca. It neither did well at the box office, nor did it have the way people feel about it now. And um a lot of things we did were just a little bit ahead of their time, like Reality Bites, mm-hmm. certainly Gattaca, which now is beloved. And weirdly, before he passed away, we got a Roger Ebert thumbs up thing from the Forgotten Film Festival. And they kind of revised what their review was. And I have this giant cast of Roger Ebert's thumb from a thing that he used to give out. That's awesome. Yeah. So you do a lot of female forward pieces we have to talk about Aaron Brockovich. What was it like creating that piece? Carla Schamberg, Michael's wife, met the real Aaron Brockovich through her chiropractor. Now, most people that work in Hollywood, when their chiropractor says, I have this patient and she's incredible and her life would make an incredible movie, would you like to meet her? Have been doing this for too long and they usually say, no, thank you. (laughs) Or they don't say what they do for a living when they go to the chiropractor or the dentist because everybody has a script for you. But Carla wasn't jaded and she met Aaron. And we always joke that she said to Michael, my partner, her husband, I met this incredible woman who would make an amazing film and Julia Roberts is going to play her. And he said, that's not a good idea for a movie and you're never going to get Julia Roberts. And she said, well, I'm going to go talk to Stacy about it. And I met the real Aaron, who at that time was still a superhero, but she was a much more vulnerable superhero. Mm. Her story was very close to having happened and was very emotional for her. And you couldn't help but fall in love with her and admire her and want to do anything you could to tell the story. That being said, we went to many pitch meetings where people passed. Really? Every studio in town passed on it. We bought it out of our discretionary fund. And and so many of those amazing films that we made at Jersey, we were able to make because we had the ability to buy things or develop things that we believed in, even if no one else did. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much gone in Hollywood. and, And that was part of how we were able to make a deal with Quentin and his former producing partner, Lawrence, you know, before anyone had seen Reservoir Dogs before, you know, barely anyone had read the script. It, it was just a leap of faith with me really believing in him. And and a wow. great partnership with Danny and Michael where they really empowered me to go for what I was passionate about. Yeah. So how long did it oh. take that you guys were shopping Aaron Brockovich? Well, everyone passed. And so because we had a discretionary fund, Gail Lyon, who worked with us at the time, introduced us to Susanna Grant and we hired her out of the fund not knowing who was going to make it. And Susanna started writing a script and she wrote a really great script and and she spent a ton of time driving back and forth to Hinkley and really getting the flavor of who Aaron was. We had a really great script and there was something missing. And by that point, Jersey Films had moved over to Universal and Mark Platt, who we had worked with also when he was at, at Columbia and TriStar, um, and Stacy Snyder were both over at Universal by that point. We went first, they were there afterwards. And Mark had a long relationship with Julia Roberts and Elaine Goldsmith Thomas, who's now Jennifer Lopez's partner, was Julia's agent at the time. And they were like, the script is not quite there. And Julia wouldn't sign on. She also wanted us to find the right director. And at that point, 
because again, we had the ability to hire somebody, Richard Lagravenez, who I'd worked with on the Fisher King and who I'm extremely close with came in to do a very important rewrite Mm. that was able to get the private Aaron. It's unfortunate that he didn't get credit on the movie. He really deserved shared credit. And we were in the middle of doing reshoots on Out of Sight with Steven Soderbergh. When I pitched it to him, he read the script and committed overnight. And based on what people had heard about Out of Sight and Steven's former body of work, Julia Roberts said yes. And Stephen and Richard continued to work on the script together. So. Wow. <laughs> no, right? It's, oh my gosh. Like your experiences, all the people you've worked with is just incredible. All of these films I love, particularly Garden State though. And when I saw it at the time that I saw it, it moved my life in a certain way. It moved my emotional needle in a way that like sort of made me have a different outlook on so many different things, especially mental health. And can we talk about Garden State for a second? Because it's one of my favorites. Yes. And I love it too. And I, again, on this day that Pam Abdi's named president of MGM, Mm -hmm. I have to really give her credit for this. Our agents who also represented Zach, you know, Zach hadn't directed before and was just starting to write. He was obviously the star of Scrubs. He wrote this script and Pam, who was by that point president of Jersey, just was so passionate about Zach, so passionate about the movie. And we completely, in the same way that they trusted me about Quentin, her belief in Zach's vision was something that we all wanted to get behind. Zach had all that music and played it for all of us and made us a mixtape. Incredible. We then tried to get financing. Everybody passed. Now a UTA agent who represents, among others, the Cohen brothers, Rich Klubeck was running business affairs and was the COO of Jersey. And he found a high net worth individual who was willing to spend the $3 million to finance the film. And Natalie came on board because she loved it so much and we made it, you know, and then we went to Sundance. It was a very heady time and all these people were vying to buy the movie and we sold it to Fox Searchlight and that's Garden State, you know, and, and Zach and I made another movie together many years later that we did a crazy thing and financed on Kickstarter. Oh, right. Called, yeah, yeah, of course. Called Wish I Was Here. And I feel like I might have shot that in between the two movies we did together. Um, right. Part of why we did it on Kickstarter is the financial offers we had, people all wanted us to double Los Angeles for Canada, mm. Canada for Los Angeles. And it, we just couldn't do it. I mean, yeah. it's such a an L.A. story in the same way, you know, Garden Garden State, State was such a New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I love that film. I mean, I love so many of your films. There's so many things oh, to talk you. about. You've worked with so many incredible people. Do you have a project that, let's say, didn't do so well in the box office or didn't go over well with the audience, but is like your heartbeat piece or a piece that's like forever that'll be like my baby? Look, I think they're all your babies. It's really hard for people to... Play favorites. Yeah. I mean, some are really hard. In a way, the difficulty of them is sort of like childbirth where you forget it or you'd never Mm. do it again. (laughs) You know, um, uh, I've often thought like, does it feel better to have a movie that's a big hit that gets bad reviews that you wish you could have made differently? Or does it feel worse to have something you think is really great and misunderstood like Gattaca or Living Out Loud, which I also really love, or Freedom Writers? 
you know, my ex-partner, Michael, always used to say, you love them all, hits feel better, you know, <laughs> than, than not having hits. Um, yeah. It's a weird thing. You know, we're sitting here nine years after making Contagion and all of a sudden people seeing the movie that we set out to make now that it's relevant to everybody's life it's and the movie up. didn't yeah. change. It didn't get better in the nine years. It's just that people can see it. Yeah, you know. Actually, Quentin said to me, Quentin came to the premiere of Fisher King with me, and it was a very, um, it was a very personal experience for me. It was one of my first really in there rolling up my sleeve experiences, and the first time with a truly experienced master filmmaker who was so gracious to me and Terry Gilliam. And we got mixed reviews. You know, yes, we went on. Mercedes won the Oscar, and Richard was nominated, mm -hmm. and and really a lot of great things happened. We were a modest hit, not a big hit. Our reviews were kind of mixed. And Quentin said to me that weekend, the reviews for your film are not written the weekend your film comes out. They're written five, 10, 20 years later. And, oh. and that's the testament of what your film is. And yeah. so I, I've always, you know, because he's such a student of cinema, even then when dogs hadn't even been edited yet at that point, I think, or maybe not even shot. It was so comforting to me. And so astute, and it's something that I've really held on to. And, and I think you start to see it when you hit anniversaries, like the 25-year anniversary of Reality Bites, or the 25-year anniversary of Pulp Fiction, or the 20th anniversary of Aaron Brockovich. You know, you start to see those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Contagion. So I will admit, I watched it for the first time last night. <laughs> Oh, my God, it's terrifying. But also, yes. uh, you said you, you started to prepare sooner than everybody because you saw this happening. Mm. Did any of it surprise you that you were so spot on with it? No, I mean, look, the public policy stuff, for the most part, and the spread of the disease and understanding what fomites are. I mean, I've always been a person who wipes everything down. Mm. In fact, it was always a big bonding for Pilar Savone, who produced Django with me. We both have always wiped down the airplane and wiped down everything. And, you know, Pilar's was less backed in, in the kind of science that I was freaked out by because I went right from Contagion into Django. The one thing we couldn't anticipate was the absolute governmental, federal government's ineptitude because that's something that nobody could have. It, it's so outside the norm. Obviously, in the film, the disease is much deadlier and was constructed right. to be that way. But the CDC and national health organizations and all of the epidemiologists that were dispatched were done so really early on. And the contact tracing in the movie was done really early on because that's what standard protocols were and testing the standard protocol. But even the kind of Jude Law character hawking crazy claims, we've seen some of those mm -hmm. and people trying to profit and fake testing centers. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's an intense time. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, even though it's terrifying. It is. It, it is. meant to be. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic gonna read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. 
wonders to whom she should give the second Cats device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. How do you guys know each other? We went to CalArts. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Kind of what I was saying about the connection of the industry. Yeah. Dana, your work has had an effect on me, and, and I feel like this is the connection I'm talking about of people inspiring others, lifting each other up, coming together, because the whole point is we're a community, despite and how hard it gets. That means a lot to me, because we were talking about that. It gets so hard. And Stacy, I know you've had your own like sort of trials and tribulations in regards to the struggle, because the struggle is real. And there's so many things and ideas and, and wants and desires that you have as an individual, just off the strength of being a woman. Stacy, we, we kind of just want to know, how do you survive? You do so much, and the industry is so hard, and you do wonderful work. How? Beautiful work. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. What is your formula? I don't have a formula, which has not been very helpful for a large portion of my <laughs> career. I was never the girl who did rom-coms or chiclet or the action lady or something like that. I guess my superpower is, you know, no is not an option. So sometimes I just have to put something on my back and carry it till it gets made. But the other thing is that if you're going to stick with something for the long haul, you have to really believe it. Yeah. And you have to really believe in it and love what you're doing, you know, or really believe in the people that you're backing. Mm-hmm. There were times when we were making Django and you remember we still didn't have the ending. Yeah. And, you know, there were crazy <laughs> days where at lunch I was like, yeah, Quentin, you're going to go with Jamie and Carrie to the Museum of Free People of Color. Because remember, he had reworked the whole ending and he came back and the shootout was like a week longer than it was going to be originally. And there wasn't a shootout in the original script. And and I think that his and my way of working together is is unique because I, I pretty much know where he's going just in that kind of mind meld that we've had for many years of friendship and working together. So it's not that hard to go out on a limb for him or to say, we need to get with it. You know, we need to move on. And I know there were times when it seemed like madness to other people, but he had to get to that emotionally satisfying ending and find his way into it where it was different than the end of Inglorious. He always wanted to make something that was about rescuing the princess while also kind of blowing up the, you know, metaphorical and literal institution of slavery. But getting to that end and the callback between the two of them and him coming together and how romantic it is. He needed to find his own way into what the perfect version for Quentin was. It sounds like it's a dance you have to perform where you trust the magic of the creativity, but you also have to put a strong arm on time constraints and the budget and this and how do you dance that dance do you ever find yourself having to choose one or the other i think that i like to really treat the filmmaking team as as my partners Mm -hmm. i don't believe in infantilizing people Um, i think we're all in it together and i think that 
you have to figure out with the filmmaker where the resources are going to go and what's really important. And sometimes you have crazy problems that end up giving you better solutions or constraints make you come up with things that you never would have thought of. You know, like going back to Django, Christoph getting hurt really early on, that's where the tooth wagon came from. Wow. He wasn't allowed to ride. Yeah. You know, there was no snow in Mammoth and we had to pull up stakes and go to Wyoming. And that's how that magical elk sequence happened because there is elk in Wyoming. And Jimmy was able to talk our way into the elk preserve. Wow. I remember we did a ceremony for a hateful for yeah, snow. We did everything. We did a ski burn. <laughs> yes. We had Native Americans come. Yeah. We did everything. It was beautiful. Look, that was also an example of we had to be prepared to do anything. I mean, Georgia and Bill and I created a shooting schedule out of post-its that, as you remember, because you were mostly inside and had to be prepared to shoot on any day where it was sunny, Mm -hmm. any day that was overcast, we went in the stagecoach double. And if there was snow, no matter what day of the week, we just kept chewing through the exterior snow stuff that we needed. And whether it was a Sunday, whether we'd been working 10 days in a row, whatever it was, we just had to get out of there. Yeah. That last thing when the the opening shot of the movie with the cross, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember what happened when the wind knocked over the cross and it shattered into like a million the pieces. pieces and, yeah. and the art department it literally was like a resurrection, um, <laughs> not to be sacrilegious on Easter week. No, no. Yeah. To have had it put back together again to be able to be used right. because otherwise there was not going to be any more snow for probably mm. another 20 days. You said you guys did a snow ceremony. Is that what you said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were shooting the same year The Revenant was and they were chasing snow all over. Mm-hmm. It was the driest year. We went to Telluride because it had predictably had a lot of snow and it was a huge drought year. Do you have anything like that, maybe quirks or superstitions that you perform on your own before a project or during a project or anything like that? I don't, but maybe I should. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, in in China, when we started in Hong Kong on Contagion, they have a ceremony. Oh, really? Yeah. Actually, there's a roast pig and the producers and director have to cut it from one end to the other so that things go smoothly from the beginning to end. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I do want to talk about this. Mrs. America. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Come America. On. So on April 15th, this is going to start airing on FX on Hulu. And I just tell us about the show. I'm so excited for it. I am so incredibly excited for everybody who's seen Mrs. America. During the summer before the 2016 election, I had seen a documentary on PBS about second wave feminism. And in the middle of it, there was a piece on Phyllis Schlafly and the feminists were calling her a woman who lived her life as a feminist. And I kind of remembered her from growing up in the 70s. but. I started thinking that this would be an incredible way to tell the story of the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment Mm -hmm. and to look at the root of institutionalized misogyny because I saw the show at the same time that I was seeing what was happening to Hillary Rodden Clinton while she was running for president. And I thought it would be interesting timing because at that time I thought we were at a historic moment where we were going to have our first female president. During that fall, it was right around when we were finishing up Hateful, I pitched the idea before the election to Davi Waller, who I'd worked with on a show that she had come up with 
at AMC, they'd kind of put us together and I really loved working with her and she was so talented and she really sparked to it and had been interested in doing something in the political arena anyway. And we sold it right away to FX. John Landgraf had been Danny DeVito, Michael Schamberg, and my partner in television when we had Jersey Television. And then she lost the election. And at that point, we realized we had to pivot to tell the story of how we got here from there. That the backlash to the women's movement was still alive and well. Yeah. And it really became the story of the origin of the culture wars, as well as the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment and the story of Phyllis Schlafly and the second wave feminists. You've got such a powerhouse female cast in this piece. You've Kate Blanchett, Elizabeth Banks, Rose Byrne, Melanie Linsky, Uzo Aduba, Sarah Paulson, Margot Martindale, just to name a few. Anisi Nash, who ironically John Landgraf and I worked with on Reno 911, which Jersey Television made. Yes. Having Kate Blanchett come on board to play Phyllis and to be a producer with us was definitely scratching off a winning lottery ticket, not just because she's, you know, the goat and the greatest person, (laughs) but also because everybody on the planet wants to work with her. And it's not just because of her extraordinary talent and hard work. I remember John Slattery saying for as long as he'd been working He learned so much just from watching her work because she really is a proponent of the 10,000 hours. She's just always studying and always working on her dialect or working on her movement, just constantly in it. And she upped everybody's game, but all the while being the most fun, hilarious, delightful person. Yeah, murderer's row of actresses. So lucky. So lucky to to work with all of them. And honestly, we all felt really supported by our male actors and allies, whether it was Ryan Fleck on the directing front, who's Anna Bowden's directing partner, and Anna and Ryan are EPs on the series as well, or Slattery, Jay Ellis. I'm trying to think of all the other incredible men that are in the piece, and, and there are a lot of them who supported our ladies. Mm-hmm. And it's not that often that men step up and say, mm-hmm. I'm going to play the husband or the boyfriend or whatever. And we were really fortunate that these extraordinarily talented guys did. Is there a different air on set in that kind of circumstance? Um, we had a lot of fun. I mean, and we also had a mostly female and extremely intersectional writer's room that was very important to Davi and to all of us. Ryan was our token straight white male, you know, and he got there because of Anna. You know, you'd have conversations about being moms and there were kids on set, but it was just a great group. I mean, Emma Asante directed episode three and four, Laura de Clermont-Turneau, who did the terrific Mustang and also did the act, which was wonderful, directed episodes five and six. Anna and Ryan came back and did seven and nine and Janixa Bravo did episode eight. So look, who doesn't want to just sit and hang out with Margot Martindale and Sarah <laughs> Paulson and Tracy and Tracy Allman, right. and, you know, and dinners were fun and set was fun. Oh my gosh. But everybody was supportive, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not to mention Melanie Linsky, who's incredible. She's a wonderful person. I love her and Sarah. I got to work with both of them. And they're the best. Projects. They're the best and also funny. So it was yeah. supportive. 
And, and I love Elizabeth Banks. She lives not that far from me and she just hiked up my hill. So I was able to socially distance, say hello from my driveway <laughs> to her and her kids and her husband. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's a fun, smart, funny, hardworking group. I don't know if the air was different. I think we just had a great group of people. Mm-hmm. It, it's nice not to be the only woman. That's a great thing too. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you feel that there's a difference in the way you approach a film versus a series? I think that I look at story for story. Look, a television series is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you do really have to pace yourself. You have to be looking at the whole. There are different challenges because, you know, we block shot. Episode eight was separated out because it's really kind of its own thing. It takes place at the Houston Women's Convention in 1977. But you definitely have to pay attention to the arc all the way through. And the actors are really used to that. They're really used to keeping the whole equation in their head. But no, I mean, I think a lot of the films I made in the 90s might live on television today since wise. And I think that you want to hold people's interests no matter what you're doing. Yeah. So if you could go back to one moment on set in your entire career, what moment would you choose to relive? Um, Wow. I I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) There's so many on so many films. You know, we had so many magical. It's funny. I remember all of these really tense, like scary moments. And maybe it's going back and saying everything's going to be okay. Like when we blew up the Candyland. Yeah. Most people, because everyone's so jaded by visual effects, don't realize that we actually blew up Candyland. And and Bob and Quentin were in like a little plexiglass box and it exploded and burned so much hotter than we thought it was going to that I was super worried that the steel on the lights were going to be compromised and that it could have fallen on Bob and Quentin who were under this tiny little plexiglass thing. Two of them were just laughing and weren't worried at all. It's like my job to worry about them. Or like I think about the night that on Fisher King when we were shooting Grand Central Station and we didn't have enough money for a choreographer because it meant that every extra would have to be a dancer. We had a thousand extras and I just remember like all night long in Grand Central Station because the extras couldn't even waltz to the Blue Danube because it was too challenging. So it was just somebody in a microphone. And at one point it might've been me going one, two, three, (laughs) one, two, three. Or I like, I I remember days like on Gattaca when we were doing the close-up work on Lauren Dean and Ethan swimming out at the end and we were shooting in a pool and we couldn't afford a wave maker and we couldn't afford to shoot in a tank either and I remember somebody saying to us like if you got a forklift it would recreate the waves well it Mm. totally didn't work that day on set and I was lying on my stomach with a kickboard along with like six other people trying to make waves so I just remember these weird moments that you know are magical Were you there the day in Vanilla Sky when they shut down Times Square? No. I will tell you, that is a moment I would never go back and relive. (laughs) Cameron Crowe, who is a friend of mine, asked me to act in a party scene. Mercifully, all of my lines are cut out. (laughs) Um, He gave me like a character name. So it shows up as I'm some character. He gave me the name Reyna. I don't exactly know why. But look, there are also, I made this movie that's not that great called Feeling Minnesota. Mm. And while we were shooting, it was like May and it was finally like 50 degrees. So I was standing 
under a skyway and talking to Paul Westerberg from The Replacements, who are a favorite band of mine. And they have a song that's called Skyway. And I was like standing under a skyway talking to him. I mean, you know, they're just goofy things like mm. having Tuesday Weld tell you stories about Elvis and working with Elvis, you know, and that was great. Or being with Robin Williams when he's entertaining the whole entire crew because you're having problems with the shot. Or, you know, making Man on the Moon where Jim Carrey never broke character. He was either Andy Kaufman or Tony Clifton. Mm. So I've been really blessed. We had that with Jamie where Jamie would sing or break people up. Or I'll tell you other horrible days. I don't want to go back in time. Like the day that Leonardo broke the glass and his hand was cut and the blood was running down. He had already hurt his shoulder with those candlesticks, which you knew how heavy they were. Oh my God. Yeah. And he didn't. And he was rehearsing and he picked it up like it was like a lightweight prop and had already ripped something in his shoulder. Mm, yeah. And I had already called the orthopedic surgeon that had been helping us on the movie. And by the time he cut his hand, I was like, bring your suture kit. He's on his way over, you know? And so it's like, it's not that they're bad. They're just like, you can't imagine that despite all of those things, the miracle of a movie happens. Like on Out of Sight, every day was fun, but it was freezing in Detroit. It was so cold. And I just worked with our script supervisor from that movie again on Respect, the Aretha Franklin film with the brilliant Jennifer Hudson. And by the way, I'd go back any day and sit on set and listen to her sing. I mean, and honestly, every day working with the ladies and the men on This Is America, I miss them. I mean, having the show come out in the middle of this, it's, it's strange not to be able to be with everybody and celebrate. How do you cope with that? Because there are so many crew members and cast members that you've had to say goodbye to because the show must come to an end. What is your process after you've completed a project to sort of mourn the end of it, if you will? It's funny that that you asked that. My late mentor and first boss, Deborah Hill, who I was super close to and who we still give out a scholarship in her name through the PGA every year to producers, not just female producers, but to people getting out of graduate school for producing. I used to make fun of her when I was first working for her because she used to clean out and organize her garage in an obsessive way after every show. But I now understand it because you come home from location with so much junk Mm -hmm. and you feel really out of control because life has moved on for everybody else. But you've been in a perfect bubble away with like your summer camp friends making something and have these intense emotional experiences. And how do you create order? My kids are always like, yeah, mom's like yelling at us all to clean up our room whenever she's back from location. And (laughs) on the other hand, we were up on top of that mountain, you know, at 9,500 feet. And they'd call me to find something in their bedroom, even though their incredibly participatory and fantastic father was at the other end of the house. It's just like, mom, do you know where my blah, blah, blah is? Right. So I just want to ask one final question because you said you have to love this in order to do it. Can you put into words what the love of making movies is? I'd say for film and TV. Honestly, I I always say to people when they ask for advice, if you could do anything else and be as happy, you should do that because this is really hard. And I don't mean hard in a brain surgery way, but you get told no all the time. You're rejected. Even when everything comes together perfectly and you make something great, nobody may show up. Or, you know, I'm as proud of the television series Sweet Vicious as anything I've ever done. 
And I got probably some of the best reviews of my career, but it was at a moment in time where MTV was doing away with scripted programming and they debuted it the night of the 2016 election. And maybe it was ahead of its time. But even when things go really well, sometimes you can have heartbreak Mm -hmm. in it. And again, I'm not talking about the kind of heartbreak that our incredible first responders are going through. But for me, I was really lucky that seeing shows like the Mary Tyler Moore show or watching That Girl after school when I'd come home because it was in syndication by that point, which was this Marlo Thomas show where she was single and living in New York and on her own in Manhattan and not married. Like Those are the only characters that I saw that had careers when I was growing up that were women. And I do believe that representation is incredibly important and that if you can't see yourself reflected in pop culture, you don't know that you can live different lives or tell different stories. So the early producers who were women that were visible were all the actresses, whether it was Jane Fonda or Barbara Streisand or Sally Field or Goldie Hawn. Those were the people who were the first producers in jobs that were visible that like a kid growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida could say, hey, maybe I could do this. But really watching movies, reading books, listening to music, watching television, those were the things that were my salvation growing up. Same, yeah. In that pre-internet world, they were the things that allowed me to see that bigger possibilities were out there and that I could relate to Razzo Rizzo and Joe Buck and Midnight Cowboy and their emotions, even though they were nothing at all like me. Right. The feelings of loneliness in the same way that, you know, somebody watching Moonlight or Parasite you understand that people have similar issues and that we're all part of this great human experience. Without cinema, and I include television in that, or or art, I, I don't know the ways we make it through for me. So that's why I couldn't do anything else. And as long as I feel that way about it, and as long as it continues to have that effect on me, and I certainly hope that Mrs. America has that for people that they want to get out there and fight for their rights, whether it's their right to be a stay-at-home mom or their right to work or their right to have control and sovereignty over their own body. Whatever those rights are, to not sit back and let them be taken away from us. That's right. Stacey, it has been such an incredible honor having you today. I really appreciate everything you've said, all of the work you've done. Everyone should go watch Mrs. America on April 15th on FX on Hulu. I cannot wait. Oh, thank you guys so much. And Dana, thank you for joining as co-host. It has been so much fun having you. This has been Dana, it was so great to see you, Dana. I know. We have to change that. As soon as this quarantine is over, I'm coming over, I'm telling you. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. Thanks, Jenny, for having us. Thank you so much, Stacey. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media. This episode of the Stuck at Home specials was hosted by me, Jenny Curtis. Co-hosted by the amazing Dana Gurrier. Many thanks to our incredible guest, Stacey Scher. Thank you to the rest of our team as well. Michael Kennedy, who did the episode mastering, Stuart Halperin, our executive producer, and Celeste and Eric Dick, who created the Hollywood Unscripted theme song. And thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you get as much joy and inspiration from these interviews as we do. Please make sure to subscribe as we have several more specials coming your way during this time of quarantine. We'd also appreciate if you'd leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Kurt Co. Media.
Media for your mind.